Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from John 12, 1 through 6, and, or 1 through 8, and 20 through 26. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. Good morning, welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of this church, and we're in a series that we have entitled That You May Believe. We are getting near the end. We're a couple of weeks away from Easter. Next week is Palm Sunday, and then we're going to be jumping into Easter and some of the things around Holy Week that we'd love to continue to invite you to. Uh, just to mention the men, we had our final morning of prayer together today. We've been going every other week throughout the season of Lent. We had a great gathering, uh, a real soft, a softness in the room. You know, when men come in and confess sin and you sense some, some uh, softening of heart, you know that God's doing some sweet things. Uh, women, you're always soft. Men, we're not always soft. And uh, I know that's not true, but the reality is to see some men coming together to confess sin, right, and to, to be together and to say, we want to surrender. The language we used this morning together were the small surrenders, right, the little choices that add up in this desire to be an apprentice of Jesus. So today, if you're following along with us, the sermon is entitled, The Apprentice. And we've been using that language to talk about following Jesus in our modern moment. And hopefully it's a bit of a provocative way for you to think about what it means to follow him. Is Jesus worth following? I mean, is he, is he who he said he was? Is he credible? Is he somebody whom I can trust? He may seem dated. His teachings may seem naive. We're modern people. We're in 2022. The world is being turned upside down. Why would I follow him? Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've hit a place in your life where you say, man, I, I, I don't know what to do, but I've been reintroduced to Jesus. 
maybe some people who follow him. They were somewhat compelling in their presentation to me about who he was and what church is about. Let me go ahead and get this out of the way as well. Church can be strange, right? Coming into this space, if you're not familiar with it, it can feel like a holy place for holy people. Let me tell you, that's not what it is, right? This is a, this is a common place for hurting people. This is a place for people who have confusion and questions, who have pain in the past, who have pain in the present, to come and say, I need a savior. I need a redeemer. This is not a place for holy people to look out at the world and say, we're distinct, we're different, we have nothing to do with you, we're set apart. This is a place for people who say, we are bound together by the simple principle of grace. Jesus has brought us together. I'm part of his family because he's redeemed me. Mercy is the foundation for the thing called the church. And so if you've brought any other expectation that there's some sort of perfectionism or holiness or righteousness in this space, it's not what it's about. It is about Jesus producing change in us that can look like righteousness and can look like holiness and can look like love of neighbor, but that's not why you're brought in. You're brought in because of Christ and what he's done. And so we're looking at the theme of apprenticing today, and hopefully it's, it's a different word. It's a provocative word, right? As you may remember, we, we taught a couple of weeks ago on the theme of following Jesus and being an apprentice. An apprentice is somebody who simply had a rabbi, and of course you wanted the rabbi to teach you his understanding of morality and the law, but it wasn't just about morality and the law. It was also about adopting his way of life in the world. In some senses, to be an apprentice meant that you weren't seeking to be an original. This is why it could be confusing for us, because all of us are looking for an authentic expression of selfhood. Let me say that Christianity is not going to squash that, but the goal of my following Jesus is not that I'm going to become this uh, unique original. I'm not looking to innovate as a pastor. I'm looking to figure out how to express the gospel uniquely, but I am not changing this thing called the gospel. I want to be somebody who follows my rabbi into this world, I want to live like he lived. I want to love like he loved. And I think you're going to get an incredible picture of that as we go into the story from John chapter 12. Let me say this as well, and then we'll jump in. Um, uh, COVID, the last couple of years, have been a unique accelerator for a lot of different things. Cultural change, if you look around, so much has shifted within the last 24 months. It is so difficult to be able to understand all of the cultural shifts. COVID has accelerated things in some ways decades beyond what would have been normally accepted through a modern movement of kind of the culture that we live in. These last 24 months have pushed things forward and they have pushed things uniquely forward in the church as well. And one of the things that COVID has exposed in the church is what some authors and writers are considering non-discipleship, okay? Non-apprenticing. And we've seen this because a lot of people have decided not to come back into their faith community or church experience during COVID. And what that has exposed, I think, is also the weakness of the church that we have not nurtured well. This isn't just on the people who haven't come back. The church needs to wake up. We need to think about what we're doing in the space that we craft and carve out each weekend, what we're doing in one another's homes, and how we are loving our neighbors. We need to think deeply about that. We haven't done it really well. 
But at the same time, there were so many people who had come into these spaces just kind of out of intellectual assent to a couple of key doctrines and ideas, but they hadn't had all of life transformation or all of life kind of a willingness to submit to the person and the work of Jesus. And this is what some people are beginning to call non-discipleship. But we want to kind of reintroduce and reinvigorate the simple idea that to be a Christian means I am an apprentice. We want this to become normal, where it becomes the centralizing component of your life, not a tangential part of your life. Because if Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, somebody who's introduced to us last week as resurrection and life, a.k.a. Jesus Christ himself, he's not somebody that I kind of keep on the side. He's my rabbi. He's my teacher. He's my savior. And my life is designed to follow him. All right? So that's what we're after. So kind of with that in mind, three things I'm going to take you through from this portion of John 12. Number one, we're going to look at this expression of devotion. Number two, the call to imitation. And number three, the reality of opposition to apprenticing under Jesus. So devotion, imitation, and opposition. Let's look at verse one again. Verse one. Six days before the Passover, this is kind of a key, key note in the text. This is Jesus' last week, all right? So this is the last few days of his life. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This has got to be one of the coolest dinner parties in human history, all right? This is, this is a dinner party. We've got a family here who is associated with Jesus, Lazarus and his sisters, okay? If you're unfamiliar with the first part of the story, Lazarus has two sisters, Martha and Mary. The text tells us they are close friends of Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool? I would love my name to be written down in history and be like, that guy was close friends with Jesus. Lazarus has passed away early in the story. He was in the grave for two days, nope, three days, nope, four days, which meant he was dead, dead. Okay, I gave you that detail last week. He's dead, dead. His body is starting to decompose. There's no hope of kind of soul restoration, even in the Jewish folklore. He's gone, gone, all right? So this is kind of an opportunity for Martha and Mary to have a thank you, Jesus, dinner. Matthew tells us this story. He says that the dinner is taking place in the home of Simon the leper. But we know that Martha is a doer. And in this story, Martha is kind of in charge of everything. She's serving everybody. And the text tells us that Lazarus is seated at the table reclining with Jesus. And we also know that most likely his other disciples were there. There's a group of 15 to 17 people in the room. And this is a thank you, Jesus, dinner. You have restored our brother. You have brought him back from the dead. And so they're saying, Thank you to Jesus. That's what's going on. I love the imagery of Lazarus sitting at the table, reclining with Jesus. And you know that as Martha is serving, what are they talking about? They're going, dude, we did not think you were coming out of that grave. 
There is no way that's what Jesus was going to do the other day. We knew that it was going to be bad. Did you hear what Martha said? She said, Jesus, don't roll the stone back. It's going to smell bad. He's dead, dead. He's been decomposing. It's hot outside. It's in the 90s and the 100s. Do not pull that stone away. And Lazarus goes, I know when I came out, I couldn't see very well. My face was covered. But Peter, I saw your face. Man, you like nearly dropped to the ground when I walked out. And then you know they're telling stories about what they saw. And then Lazarus is just keeping his eyes on Jesus. He's like, that guy right there. We are here because of that man. This dinner is about him. You can kind of imagine this Jesus thank you dinner. And then verse 3 brings our attention back to Mary. We're going to focus on her. John tells us that Mary enters the room while dinner is being served, and she quietly makes her way to Jesus' feet. Probably no pomp, probably no attention brought to herself. She just quietly makes her way to where Jesus is seated. And she takes this incredibly rare and very expensive ointment that is made from this foreign, beautiful fragrance, this pure nard. And she pours that perfumed oil upon Jesus' feet as an act of honor and devotion and gratitude. And as she does so, the text also gives us the detail that she lets down her hair. Women were not allowed to let down their hair in this moment in history in the ancient Near East. This would have been extremely provocative for anybody who's in the room. And she begins to wipe Jesus's feet with her own hair. If you think that is strange, let me affirm for you that it is. It was then. I mean, if it makes you uncomfortable to think about somebody making their way with a fragrance, a beautiful, expensive oil, and to sit at Jesus' feet and to pour it on his feet, much less touch his feet, but to put oil on his feet, and then to take your hair and clean his feet, anoint his feet with this fragrance, this isn't normal. Okay, you go, man, I don't know if I would have the audacity or the courage to do that. That's also the context of what's happening in the story. They're going, Mary, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. Mary's actions were explosive, man. They literally sucked the air out of the room. People's jaws hit the floor. It made people uncomfortable. If you are familiar with what took place at the Oscars last week, I'm sure that most of you are very aware of the slap heard around the world. In some senses, this is exactly the type of event, the type of moment. Yes, very different circumstances, but this action changed the tone and the tenor of the entire evening for everybody. Okay, so you can kind of keep that in mind as we're going through this. Matthew tells us that even the disciples We're indignant. The 12 are going, what is Mary doing? John tells us that Judas is the one who has the courage or the audacity to speak up. Our text tells us that Judas, he expresses his self-righteous indignation. But it would be safe to say that Mary's actions caught the attention, if not the initial disapproval of everybody in the room. But notice this, Mary didn't care because she wasn't there for them. She was there for Jesus. Devotion, worship, honor, particular practices and habits that prove your dedication to the God of your choosing is a nearly universal component of religion. 
you may be thinking that pouring yourself out for your deity of choice is actually quite common, whether that God is a literal idol or it's Allah or it's Brahman or it's the almighty dollar. Devotion and sacrifice are a normal part of commitment to the God of your choice. See, but it's Christianity alone that says that our devotion as followers of Christ follows from grace and not for it. Okay, this is very important to understanding the heartbeat of Christianity. Some people say, aren't all world religions the same? In no way are they the same. Christianity is the only one that says devotion follows from grace, follows from resurrection, follows from life, and not for it. And this is what you see in this woman's life. What does this mean? Let me give you a couple of neat little uh, hints and tips and tricks from the life of Mary. We really only see her and her family brought up three times in the Gospels. Now, when we examine the life of Mary, she is always associated with Jesus' feet. Isn't that unique? You're going to be known as somebody who's a friend of Jesus, but every time you're described, there's something going on, literally in the text, with Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 10, we're told that Mary sits at Jesus' feet. He's teaching, she's listening, she's resting. In Luke chapter, I'm sorry, in John chapter 11 from last week, she falls at Jesus' feet, completely dependent. Her brother is dead. She's so weary. She's so grieved. She falls at Jesus's feet, dependent. And then here in John chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus's feet. Why this expression of devotion? And it's simple. The text is so clear. It's because she and her family are the recipients of resurrection and life, aren't they? This is where her devotion comes from. She's already the recipient. What has Mary done in the story to deserve resurrection in life? Nothing but be the friend of Jesus. And he shows up and he blows her away. See, and now Mary wants to respond. Her pouring out is in response to what she has received from Jesus, not because she wants mercy from him. And so she finds the most significant thing that she owns, this bottle of Pure nard claimed to have been valued at around a year's worth of wages. It says 300 denarii. 300 denarii was a one day's wage for the average worker. If he made around $4 an hour in that day and age, this would have been worth between $12,000 and $25,000. Think about what a year's worth of wages are for you. Then you buy something, break it open, and pour it on the feet of Jesus. This has become a sign and a symbol that Jesus has become the supreme value in her life. And see, because he's become the supreme value, it's changed her behavior. Because they're looking at her behavior and going, this doesn't make sense. What kind of devotion is this? And see, because Jesus has become the supreme value in her life, it's shifted the way she behaves because we always live from our values. This is where apprenticing starts to make sense. I always live from what I value. And I think what makes everyone in the room uncomfortable, besides the obvious social dynamic that we've talked about, is that Mary is not calculating in her devotion to Jesus. Write that phrase down. Mary is not calculating in her devotion to Jesus. Now, she's clearly thoughtful. She's thought about what she wants to do. She's thought about this family heirloom. She decides that's the thing that I want to pour out on his feet to express my affection and my gratitude to Jesus. But she's also emotional, isn't she? 
I mean, she's expressive. She's public about her faith. Let me say that strategy and calculation have a place to play in poker, launching a new business, and maybe even launching a war. But strategy and calculation don't have a place to play in worship and adoration and devotion to the King of Kings. I want you to notice the reaction to Mary's choices. Essentially, the room is thinking, wow, that's a little excessive, Mary. It seems like you have gone clearly overboard this time. I mean, the perfume that you've poured out could have been sold and given to the poor. It would have benefited so many, but you have poured it all out for Jesus. See, many of us are willing to make calculated investments in Jesus, his church, and the gospel. We're strategic with our devotion portfolio. Jesus, you can have a few hours of my time, but don't expect me to rally my life around your life and your ancient teachings. I mean, if you benefit me, if you propel Project Self, if you make me feel good, if I like what you're saying, you can have a little bit more of my time, and maybe in enough time, you can have a little bit of my money But do not expect me to kind of reorient my entire life around you, especially if you have things to say to me that challenge what I think is good, what I think is going to make me happy, or if you ask me to endure a particularly difficult season in life. See, because then I'm going to think to myself that this God has not lived up to the hype. I thought Christianity was supposed to be about me and mine. You're not at the center of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ is at the center of the Christian faith. And it's not simply about what I can get from him. It's about him. It's about Jesus. If you're at the center and something gets in the way, then go ahead and walk away from him. Apprenticing shouldn't be part of your vocabulary. But if it's about Jesus as resurrection and life, you go, man, whatever you're going to give me, whatever you have for me, I trust you with the life that I'm living. You're at the center. I've put myself at the center in nearly every arena. See, if following Jesus were first about me and my fulfillment, then anything that puts a barrier in front of your self-service project should be eliminated. But if Christianity is first about Christ, then worship and awe and devotion must outweigh critique. Do you feel that? If it's first about him, then worship, awe, devotion, my life for your life has to outweigh the other things that we've put in the front. This is a beautiful little phrase that Spurgeon used to to talk about Mary. He said, this is a portraiture of a soul on fire. Can you feel that? When you read Mary's story, you're like a soul on fire. Not because she's fearful, not because of of some anxiety to perform, but because she goes, man, resurrection and life have broken in and my soul is on fire. What can I do to pour out affection in response to mercy, not for mercy? A beautiful phrase, a portrait of a soul on fire, the expression of devotion. Let me take you to part two, the call to imitation. Verse 20 says this, look there with me. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So a few days after this thank you Jesus dinner with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the disciples, Jesus has made his way into the city of Jerusalem. He has been lauded as the coming king. This is something that we're going to look more specifically at next week on Palm Sunday. People thought that he was going to be the Roman conqueror. He's going to restore the place of Israel amongst the nations. They're looking to Jesus for very specific things. And at this point in the story, there's a lot of noise around Jesus. Okay, there's a lot of good noise, there's a lot of bad noise. There's a lot of buzz around the person of Jesus. People want to get a glimpse of him, people want to see him, including this group, this group of Greeks who have come to be a part of the Jewish celebration that's coming, the Passover. So the, t- the story tells us that the Greeks find Philip and Andrew and make their request to see Jesus. They go and take that request to Jesus, and it's interesting to note what Jesus does not say. When he hears that there are people who want to see him, he doesn't say, wonderful, bring him on over, let's have a bigger party. What does he do? Instead, he tells this strange story about his hour and a grain of wheat that has to die. Anytime in the Gospels, when Jesus is talking about his hour, usually he's saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And you kind of think to yourself, Jesus, it's a strange phrase. You say it a lot. What's it about? In John's Gospel, you may know that when he says that, he's always talking about the cross, his crucifixion, and his death. And so in this place, when they say, Jesus, we want to see you, he goes into a story about, my hour has now arrived, and this grain of wheat has to die. What is this about? Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to the cross. And if you want to see me, you want to see me properly, you have to see what I'm about to do. In order to see me, you have to see my death. He goes, I've come that I might bring life. But in order to do that, in order to bring the world back in, in order to create this pan-national family, that's going to have all of this fruitfulness, including those Greeks. He goes, in order for you to see me properly, I'm going to have to give up my life. See, he can't bear that fruit in any way except through dying. And then as John Piper has said, he says, Jesus' dying for our salvation is also his design for our imitation. This is where it gets a little bit harder to think about apprenticing. Jesus dying for our salvation is also his design for our imitation. If you want to see Jesus, you have to be prepared to become like Jesus. That's what he's saying. If you really want to know him, if you really want to see him, you got to be prepared to become like him. Verse 25, look there again. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We're going to talk about that. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you want to see me, you have to be prepared to become like me. So often we want to see Jesus. Which one? Which Jesus do you want to see? 
See, the one that condones Project Self, the one that's here to help you, the one who's therapeutic, the one who makes you feel good, or the one who says, if you really want to know what I'm about, you have to see me laying down my life. Jesus, why are you laying down your life for you? What does that mean, Jesus? It means there's things in your life that need to die. Well, why can't I fix it myself, Jesus? Because there's sin in your life and it's against me. Why can't I fix that myself, Jesus? Because you're not the Savior. He says, if you want to see me, you have to see me give up my life for you. A couple other places that the New Testament and the gospel show us this, Matthew 7. This makes us uncomfortable at this pattern of apprenticing. Matthew 7, 14, Jesus says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Colossians 3 Two and three, it says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have what? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Romans 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Let me simply say, as a pastor of this church and as part of a larger leadership team, we are praying for a season of revival and renewal and reawakening throughout all of these difficult months. Man, God has brought us through a lot. God has brought you through a lot. I don't know each of your individual stories, but I bet it's been filled with hardship, pain, and suffering. We are praying for revival, praying for renewal, praying for apprenticeship under Jesus to become normal again. But what is Jesus' pathway for that to happen? Jesus, revive us. Jesus, do something big. Do something bold. Change the inside of my soul so that I feel again and love you again. It's easy to pray that. But what is the pathway towards that sort of experience? He says it's death. It's death. Verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, which means that if your experience of Jesus has felt dry, pointless, and apathetic, rather than passionate and fruitful, maybe there is something in your life that needs to die. And maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a disposition. Maybe it is a dream. Maybe it is a relationship that has become so central. Maybe it's an experience that you will not forgive, even though you have had the chance to nurture it and to change it and to shift it, but you are not willing to go there. Maybe it's any sort of thing that has risen to primary position in your life because that is what the Bible describes as sin. Jesus, we want to feel again. We want to live again. He goes, I know the ingredients It's cross and then resurrection. It's death to self so you can find fruitfulness in your life. Do you believe that? That he's laid down the pattern for us to find fruit in our lives again? For our church to experience a season of growth and fruitfulness, is there a corporate dying that has to precede it? What would it look like for our members at this church to say, we are entering into a season of death to self? You know what people go, what? What kind of church is this? Strange church. Strange people. Everything around you says live for yourself. And Jesus says, if you want to live, you got to die to yourself. 
This is where the good stuff happens. This is where Jesus is on the move. This is where revival takes place. When somebody asked the great George Mueller, he was an evangelist. He was a founder of orphanages. Somebody asked George Mueller, who was so committed to prayer, they said, George, what is the secret of your life? Here's what he said. Story says that he hung his head and he said to them, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, tastes, and will died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame, even of brethren and of friends. And you go, man, that's why I'm not a Christian. You're telling me that I got to submit all of my will, all of my tastes, all of my preferences. I like good food. I like good clothes. I like to drive what I want to drive. I like the types of vacations I want to have. That's not what this text is about. That's not what George Mueller's quote was about either. He's not saying I have to live a life of depravity. What he's saying is I'm no longer at the center of everything. That's what he's saying. Go get your good stuff. But if it takes you away from Jesus Christ, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Dallas Willard writes, self-denial must never be confused with self-rejection, nor is it to be thought of as a painful and strenuous act, perhaps repeated from time to time against a great internal resistance, kind of like a diet, like a holiness diet. Like, Jesus, I'm going to go on my holiness diet. Diets never work. Holiness diets never work. I'm going to die to myself this day. Well, maybe not next week. I'm going to die to a few things. No, it becomes a disposition. It's not self-rejection. It's not simply saying, I don't like me or I don't like uh, my preferences, that I have no personality anymore. The people that have given themselves away are the people who are the most alive. This isn't self-rejection. This is saying, Jesus, I'm no longer Lord and King even of me. Is not to be thought of as a painful and strenuous act, perhaps repeated from time to time against a great internal resistance. It is rather an overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God, better described as death to self. When Jesus says we must lose our lives if we are to find them, he's teaching on the negative side that we must not make ourselves and our survival the ultimate point of reference in our world. Must not, in effect, treat ourselves as God should be treated or treat ourselves as God. Now you're getting closer to the heartbeat of what Jesus is saying. A grain of wheat in order to bring forth life and fruit has got to go in and it's got to die. He goes, it happens in nature, but it happens in the human, the human heart, the human soul as well. Let me give you one more quote and I'll take you to the end. Paul Tripp, he says, we are called to die to that life where we did what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it and how we wanted to do it. We are called to die to setting our own rules and living however we please. We are called to die to our rulership of our own lives. We are called to let go of our self-appointed sovereignty, living as if we're the only master that we need and to surrender ourselves and all that we have to another master. We are called to die to our desires for our own comfort, pleasure, and glory and give ourselves to seek the glory of the king and the success of his kingdom. We are called to die to our own righteousness and find our hope, help, and comfort in the righteousness of Jesus given over to our account. Maybe we begin by simply recognizing that our self-preservation instinct is more natural than self-sacrifice. See, but not for Jesus. He lived differently, didn't he? And he is at a dinner party 
celebrating resurrection and life. He's with one of his closest friends, and they are there to serve him. But for Jesus, death was was always on his mind. Not in a morbid way, not in a melancholic way, but rather because he knew that the way of death was the only way any of you and me, any of us were going to be able to experience true life. Even at a dinner party celebrating resurrection, Jesus had death on his mind because he had you on his mind, you see. Death is always on his mind because he's thinking of you. Even at a party, Jesus reinterpreted Mary's anointing of his feet as an anointing for burial. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. To see Jesus is to imitate him. To follow him is to live. To walk your own way is death. To put yourself second is the foundation of a fruitful life, but to put yourself first is spiritual suicide. To prioritize the kingdom of God is joy and purpose. To prioritize the kingdom of self is only confusion and frustration. To view your own life as the orienting principle of life on planet Earth is to lose it. But to view Jesus Christ as the orienting principle is to experience eternal life. Now, it begins now, and it lasts into the world to come. The call to imitation. Let me take it to the third part, the reality of opposition. Now, if you look back to the story of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, the story ends telling us that Judas has some difficult things to say, that Judas ridiculed Mary. His commitment to dishonest gain and his love for money outweighed his devotion to Jesus. What he valued began to war against what Mary valued. See, and Jesus tells us so many times in the Gospels that this can be the case for anybody who decides to follow him. And he talks about it in multiple places. And one of them is in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus tells the famous parable of the seed and the sowers. And in Matthew 13, he talks about a parable where seed has been planted, which in this case is a metaphor for the word of God, God's power and presence in people's lives. But three out of four don't make it. It's like 25% of the seed's going to make it. Every time you read this, you should be going, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on in the story? What's going on in the soils? He's talking about the human heart. Three out of the four produce no growth. There's too much opposition. And I'm just going to summarize this by saying that the first seed, is, this is the word of God, it's, it's sown along the path. And in this one, he says that the word of God is, is sown into somebody's life. But the reality of spiritual forces coming at you through narratives and through ideas, through books and through media, all of it proves too much. The the seed in the word has no ability to germinate and to grow, and it has no ability and no root, and so it's gone. So the seed sown along the path, the devil and his forces, the reality of spiritual influence comes in, and it steals the joy, it steals the word. There's no fruit. There's opposition. Number two, the seed sown on rocky ground essentially says somebody rejoices. Jesus is good, but then because of your newfound faith, persecution and suffering creep into your life. And when that starts to happen, because of your faith, you go, I don't want much to do with Jesus. I'm done. I'm walking away. This is seed that's sown on rocky ground. There's no fruit. There's too much opposition. And then the third example of a fruitless life, you have the seed sown 
among thorns. And this is the one I want you to listen to. This is the one that says, where Jesus says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word. In other words, the opposition is simply good things. That's it. No growth because of too many good things. Good people, good jobs. I don't have a big need for Jesus. Things will war for your heart. The forces of Western culture are so often aligned against the ways of Jesus. We're told to live for yourself, follow your heart, do what feels good. Don't allow anything to restrain your freedom. Television, talk shows, news news feeds, TikTok, it's the air we breathe. Love yourself first. Do not ever lose yourself. And in a city like San Diego, our comfort reflex is so often stronger than our call to be apprentices. Our comfort reflex. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. Say, Jesus is not worth it. Man, what could God be saying to your life today? What's he exposing? What do you sense? What do you feel? Where do you fit in the narrative? Jesus says that repentance is simply coming back to him and saying, Lord, I surrender. It's going to be a series of surrenders. I got to die to myself so that I can live. I'm tired of a life that looks like death. I'm at the center of everything. It's taking me nowhere. Jesus, come and change that in my life. I want to live. I want to find freedom. Where are you in that narrative today? Jesus' invitation has come. Come and find rest. Come and find freedom. Come and find me. I have died. Resurrection and life are a gift to you. Devotion flows from it, not for it. What do you sense? What do you feel? Whatever you're sensing and feeling, let me lead you as we pray. Lord Jesus, we too can have a heart reworked and rewired by grace. And we want it. We need it. This is not a holy huddle for holy people. This is a hurting huddle for hurting people. This is a place of surrender. This is a place of letting go. This is a place of grace and mercy because that's the type of king you are. You love to give away resurrection and life. You described yourself that way. You introduced yourself that way to Mary and to Martha. I am resurrection and life. And after you spoke that to them, you brought their brother back from the dead, and then Mary pours herself out. She's not calculated. She's not strategic because her heart has come to value Jesus more than anything else. Could that happen here? Why not here? And why not now? We pray for the Spirit of God to move in this space, move in our hearts, move in this church. Revive us, we pray. Whatever thought we've carried into prayer, where are we in the story? And we are four days in the grave. Maybe we're Martha, we're serving. Maybe we're Mary, we're anointing feet. Maybe we're Judas. We've got so many questions, doubt, skepticism. All of those stories are okay because Jesus looks at each of them and says, come to me, I'm resurrection, I'm life. Lord God, would you soften us to come? Series of surrenders. Let it start now. Why not here? Why not now? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.